Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Among the people of Israel, ancient and modern, there is no prophet more revered or considered more powerful than the prophet Elijah. Malachi, the last of the Hebrew prophets, foretold that Elijah would come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. There is only one other character in the entire Bible who speaks directly of standing in the presence of God. That other person is the angel Gabriel, who tells a befuddled Zechariah that his son, who needs to be named John, will grow up to be a prophet in the manner of Elijah. When that John grows up and tells the priests and the Levites that no, he is not the Messiah, they ask him, who then are you Elijah? When Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? They tell him, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah or one of the prophets. When Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to where Jesus is transfigured, the amazed disciples see Jesus speaking to Moses and Elijah. When Jesus cries out from the cross. Some people say he is crying out for Elijah. Others say, let us wait and see if Elijah will rescue him. To this very day, at Passover Seder meals, a chair is left vacant for the presence of Elijah. So how is it that we find this most revered, most powerful of all the Hebrew prophets cowering under a broom tree, a solitary tree, asking that he might die, saying that he is no better than his ancestors, that he's had enough. Well, he's had an eventful three to three and a half years, times of hardship, danger, and disappointment. It all begins with his entrance into the biblical narrative when Elijah shows up before King Ahab and says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now that is not a weather forecast. That's a theological throwdown. Ahab is the worst king in a long line of Israelite kings. 
He has done more to provoke the anger of God than all the kings that came before him. That's not me talking. That's from 1 Kings directly. He's a terrible king. And the reason he's provoked the anger of the Lord is that he has followed his wife Jezebel, this Canaanite princess, who worships the pagan god Baal. And so he has followed her into that religion and has even built a temple for this Canaanite god in his capital city, Samaria. He's taken the people of Israel away from the God of Israel, Yahweh, and into pagan worship. So when Elijah says, there shall be no rain for these years, that's a direct affront to the pagan God who is alleged to be the God of the storm and the rain. That's a direct challenge to Ahab, and like most kings, Ahab doesn't like direct challenges. So, peremptively, God tells Elijah to go east, to go across the Jordan, go into the desert. Who would look for you in the desert in a drought? There is a wadi, an oasis there at Cherith. Go there, stay under the tree, there'll be water, you can drink the water, and God commands the ravens to bring him bread and meat twice a day. Now, I said this was the beginning of hardship, and that doesn't really sound like hardship, at least at first. I mean, pretty good gig. You get to stay in the shade, you get to listen to the water, the cool water going by, drink all the water you want, your food's delivered twice a day. What's so hard about that? Well, if you think about it, we have been through something similar and we have come to realize that there is too much, there is such a thing as too much time on your hands that we don't do long-term solitude well. It's been one to two years, depending how you consider it, of social isolation or awkwardness. And for adults, that's, that's two years, give or take. But if you're a four-year-old child, that's half of your lifetime. And we think about our elderly who were trapped in nursing homes, removed from the sight, the sound, the touch of their loved ones. Not all hardship is physical. Well, after about a year, the wadi dries up and the danger ratchets up. God tells Elijah to find a certain widow in the village of Zarephath and to stay with her and her son, and he can stay there and eat with her. Well, Zarephath is in the province of Sidon, and Sidon is Jezebel's backyard. This is the center of the pagan god worship, and her spies are everywhere. So Elijah spends his time there, constantly looking over his shoulder. And we know what that's about too, or at least we've seen it in our combat troops who have spent a year or years constantly on alert, always vigilant, never at ease. And we've seen where that can lead. Well, in the third year of the drought, 
God tells Elijah to go to Ahab to have him assemble the people of Israel and the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, a mountain at the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. So they assemble and Elijah comes and tells the people of Israel, how long will you limp along between two opinions? If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And the people answer, not a word. Now you know this story. If you don't, it's in 1 Kings chapter 18. You can read the whole thing. But basically, Elijah tells the prophets of Baal to, to prepare their altar and their sacrifice and call on their god, the storm god, the god of lightning after all, to call down fire and, and start their sacrifice. So the prophets of Baal gather all the, the firewood and they prepare the firewood and there's a the sacrifice and then they start screaming and shouting and shrieking and yelling and singing and dancing and cavorting and, and all this stuff. They start cutting themselves with swords and lances and from mid-morning till mid-afternoon it's just chaos of all their noise and the mess they're making and there is no response. So it's Elijah's turn. He repairs the altar that the Israelites used to use, puts on the sacrifice, sets up the firewood, digs a trench around the whole thing. Looks like he's ready to go, but he tells the people of Israel to take these big jars and fill them with water and douse the wood. Once, twice, three times they douse the wood so even the water, the trench, is full of water. It's everywhere. Then Elijah says a brief prayer, no histrionics, just a simple prayer. Fire falls from the sky, lights the wood, burns up the altar, the sacrifice, the water, everything. The people have a very brief revival of loyalty to Yahweh, and they surround the 450 prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal are killed. Ahab is quick to go tell Jezebel and to blame it all on Elijah. Elijah killed the prophets of Baal. Whether he did all 450 or killed all 450 or not is not known. But somehow they were killed and it was on his watch so he takes the blame and so she sends a messenger to Elijah saying that by this time tomorrow what has happened to the prophets of Baal will happen to you so Elijah heads south to Beersheba as far south as far away as he can get from Jezebel and then he goes a day further. And he sits under the broom tree. And that's where we heard our scripture reading. Where he says, Lord, let me die. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's had hardship and danger and now disappointment. He thought after the fire lighting contest at Mount Carmel that there would be a huge national revival. I mean, after all, how could it be more clear as to which God is the real God. 
How could it be any plainer? But yet, the people went back to their pagan gods, just as they had centuries before with Elijah's ancestors. We know something about disappointment, too. When the tumor doesn't shrink, when the medicine doesn't work, when the relationships don't heal, when our prayers don't seem to be going anywhere. So what do we do when we find ourselves like Elijah, frustrated, exhausted, lonely, vulnerable? What do we do when we find ourselves under the broom tree? There are no easy answers, but I have a few suggestions. The first thing we can do is expect it. Think about it. If these doubts come upon Elijah, a man who can declare a years-long drought, who can call fire down from the sky, what makes us think that you or I won't have doubts? If it happens to him, it will happen to us. We need to think about what this doubt is, is like for Elijah. And maybe not, doubt is not totally the right word. There are other words like disillusionment or disappointment. I like the word that the, the psalmist used, disquieted. Be still and know that I am God. But you can't be still, you're disquieted. There's something wrong in your relationship. Maybe based on disappointment. Your, your prayers don't seem to be going anywhere. But whatever it is, we will have some time under the broom tree. Now what Elijah doubted wasn't the existence of God. I mean, he introduces himself as one who stands before the living God of Israel. Well, if I'm not sure what it means to stand before God, but it would be mentally difficult to say that you stand before something that you don't think exists. And I don't think that Elijah doubts the power of God. My goodness, he's been fed uh, by the ravens. He's been eaten from a jar of grain that never emptied. He doesn't doubt the power of God. He doesn't doubt the existence of God. Even here under the broom tree, he's speaking to God, asking God to let him go, to be freed from his duties. So expect to have doubts. And then when they come, not if, but when, embrace the doubts or the disgruntlement, the disquieting, the disappointment, whatever it is. Embrace those. Kathleen Norris is a spiritual writer of some renown, and she has had an, an on-again, off-again relationship with God and the church most of her life. 
And during one of those periods, she convinced herself that she did not belong in church because she didn't have her beliefs rock solid on a rock solid basis. She had questions that she couldn't answer and she just didn't think she should be at church. She went to a nearby Benedictine monastery. She found out that the otherwise hospitable monks were not the least bit interested in hearing about her intellectual doubts and her concerns with Christianity. They'd heard them all before. What monk, one monk told her stuck with her and stuck with me when I read it. He said, your, your doubt is the seed of your faith. It's a sign that your faith can grow, that it's alive. So embrace your doubt. It is the seed of new growth. And there's this as well. Faith is never straightforward or easy. The scholar Abraham Heschel has written the, the definitive book on the Hebrew prophets. And here's what he says about our relationship with God. Man is ready to accept a God who is close at hand, whose power is present, whose judgment can be understood, whose glory can be experienced. But the invisible God of Israel is hard on man, for God's power is often absent, God's judgment obscure, God's glory concealed. And from a different source, John Meacham also quotes Rabbi Heschel, God did not make it easy for us to have faith in him, to remain faithful to him. The facts that deny the divine are mighty. Our faith is fragile, never immune to error, distortion, or deception. There are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. Supreme among them all are the prophets of Israel and, as Meacham would add, for our purposes, the New Testament authors. So you're going to have doubts. Expect them. And then engage. The word engage has two connotations I want to talk about. One is a commitment. If you get engaged to a person or to a, a cause or to a life's work, you make a commitment and you work diligently with that to make that commitment, to keep that commitment, even through the inevitable difficulties. And the other has to do with moving forward. I may be one of the few who remember a time when there were three pedals on the floorboard of a car, gas pedal, brake, and the clutch. And you disengaged or engaged the clutch to disengage the transmission. You were in neutral. And then to go forward, you had to release the clutch and engage the transmission. Now, that's not a simple process. It takes a long time to learn. I learned it on my 
in an open field in my grandfather's farm, if you learned it around Haywood County with all the hills, you know that it's possible you'll go backward before you go forward. But over time, you get the hang of it, and, and you get your groove on, and you get, you get it in gear, and you engage. Well, that's what happened with Elijah. He did not receive a word of solace from God, no word of comfort, but neither did he receive any reprimand. What he received after some time was a new set of marching orders. God tells him a little later, rise, be on your way. There are kings to anoint. There's a, a prophet that you need to recruit. Go and do these things. And Elijah gets up and he goes. And he anoints the kings and he recruits the prophet. And he gets his groove back with, with God. And pretty soon he's back before Ahab, chastising him for the state-sponsored murder of Naboth and the stealing of his vineyard for Ahab and Jezebel's personal use. We are going to have doubts. We're going to have to embrace them because they are the seed of our faith and then engage. Be alert to what God would have you be doing. And there's one more thing. The broom tree is a symbol of revival. Its seeds can withstand the heat of the hottest fire. And the seeds will grow. The tree will regerminate, even when everything else around it is gone. Your faith can revive Rebloom, if you will expect and embrace your time under the broom tree. Thanks be to God. Amen.